0: Welcome everybody to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. The event we're analyzing today is the Korean War. Other than watching the TV show MASH, most people know very little about what happened in the Korean War. Most importantly, most people know very little about why the Korean War occurred and its worldwide ramifications in the context of the Cold War. So let's explore. This episode is not going to deal much with military matters. The political intrigues from the Cold War are much more interesting. Let's set the stage with Korea. Korea is a peninsula on the eastern edge of Asia. Korea was dominated for centuries by China, mostly because Korea is a small country and China is enormous. But the Koreans have a separate language and a separate culture and consider themselves a separate country. For historical context, I'm going to start with the beginning of the 20th century. At that time, Korea was nominally independent and known as the Korean Empire. Unfortunately for the Koreans, they were surrounded by powerful countries, China, Japan, and Russia. The Russians tried to expand into Korea in the beginning of the 20th century. Then, there was this war between Japan and Russia from 1904 to 1905. After the Russo-Japanese War, Korea became a protectorate of Japan, meaning that Korea was no longer independent, it was controlled and protected by the Japanese. This ambiguous status was resolved in 1910, when Japan simply annexed Korea. Japan completely controlled Korea up through the end of World War II in 1945. Japan's rule of Korea was very harsh, but I don't have time to go through that today because I need to get back to the Korean situation after World War II. Before we get back to Korea, we need to discuss what was going on in China before 1950. This is another long and complicated story, but I'll address the bare bones necessary to understand what happened in Korea. The Chinese Civil War started in 1927. On one side were the Chinese nationalists, and on the other side were the Chinese communists. The nationalists were led by Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek. The communists were led by Mao Zedong, also known as Chairman Mao. Japan conquered the Chinese province of Manchuria in 1931, but the full-scale war between Japan and China started in 1937. At that time, The nationalists and communists put their differences aside to fight the common enemy, the Japanese. I'll come back to the Chinese in a little bit. Now let's talk a little bit about the Soviet Union. Of all the major belligerents in World War II, there were two that were on opposite sides and hostile to each other, but were not actually at war with each other. That would be Japan and the Soviet Union. But the peace between those two countries was not going to last. Joseph Stalin, the brutal dictator of the USSR, agreed with the United States to enter the war against Japan within three months after the defeat of Nazi Germany. May 8, 1945, was VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. Nazi Germany was defeated. On August 8, 1945, three months to the day, the Soviet Union declared war on Japan. The Soviets attacked the Japanese forces in the northern region of China, known as Manchuria, as well as the northern parts of Korea. Most people don't realize that the former Soviet Union and current Russia borders the northeastern part of Korea. During the war, there had been discussions between the Allies, meaning the U.S., Soviet Union, and Britain, about the post-war world. One of the agreements between the Allies was that Korea should be an independent country. Although they had this general agreement, there were not a lot of details as to how this would come about. The last World War II conference among the Allies occurred in Potsdam, Germany in July 1945. At this point, Franklin Roosevelt had died. He had died in the previous April, and Harry Truman was now president. Among the many items discussed at the Potsdam conference... It was agreed that the Soviet Union and the U.S. would jointly occupy Korea after the Japanese surrender. The Japanese surrendered on August 15, 1945. By the way, some of these dates get a little funny because of the international date line, so I'm using the dates that applied to Korea. The Soviets had already been in Korea for about a week at that time. U.S. troops arrived in Korea on September 8, 1945 it was agreed between the Soviets and the Americans that the demarcation of the occupation zones would be the 38th parallel, which essentially divided the country in half. The occupation zones of certain countries after World War II was not meant to be permanent. However, this only worked out properly with the occupation of Austria. Pursuant to the agreement of the Allies, the Soviets occupied the eastern part of Austria and the Americans, British, and French occupied the rest of the country. In 1938, Austria had been annexed by Germany, and in World War II, fought as part of Germany. After the war, the Allies decided to treat Austria as a separate country again. The Allied occupation lasted for 10 years. After Austria promised to be perpetually neutral, all of the occupying powers withdrew from Austria in 1955. Austria was granted full independence on May 15, 1955, and the last of the occupation troops left Austria in October of that year. The only reason the Soviets cooperated with the Western Allies to allow Austrian independence was because Stalin had died in 1953, and the new Soviet premier, Nikita Khrushchev, was trying to promote better relations with the West in 1955. The most famous example of a country being divided up into occupation zones was Germany. The Soviets occupied one-third of Germany in the eastern section. The other two-thirds were split up between the U.S., Britain, and France. The original idea was that Germany would be reunited as an independent nation, but disputes arose regarding what type of government. Stalin and his communist friends thought that Germany should be a communist country. The Western Allies thought that Germany should become a capitalist democracy. This resulted in two separate countries, East Germany and West Germany, up until the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Okay, this brings us back to Korea. The division and occupation of Korea was supposed to be, for five years, with a reunification under one government, like what eventually happened in Austria. However, Korea ended up following the German model, with a communist government being set up in the north and a capitalist democratic regime in the south. This resulted in two separate capitals, Pyongyang in North Korea and Seoul in South Korea. The U.S. attempted to reunite Korea through elections. The elections were supposed to be for all of Korea, which would then be under one unified government. However... The Korean communists refused to participate in the elections, and they were being backed by the Soviets. So when the U.S. arranged for an election in 1948, the Soviet forces who were controlling North Korea refused the U.N. supervisors' entry into North Korea to hold the election. So the election was only held in the South. Sigmund Rhee was elected by an overwhelming majority But there were serious questions about the fairness of this election. So who was Sigmund Rhee? Before World War II, he had been involved in Korean politics for years. He spent most of his time exiled in the United States, where he developed a lot of political contacts. Rhee was living in the U.S. when the Japanese surrendered. At that time, the U.S. government sent him back to Korea. The United States government looked favorably upon Sigmund Rhee because... He had strong anti-communist positions, and he was fluent in English. Now, earlier I said there were serious questions about that election in 1948. The main thing that raised questions was the fact that Sigmund Rhee received over 92% of the vote. Anyway, he became the first president of the Republic of Korea. Unfortunately, Rhee was not a true believer of democracy and ruled South Korea more like a dictator. So why did the U.S. support a guy like Sigmund Rhee? The simple answer is, it was the Cold War. After World War II, the alliance that held together the U.S. and Britain on one side and the Soviet Union on the other side quickly fell apart. They no longer had the common enemies of Nazi Germany and the military regime of Japan. After Germany was defeated, Stalin immediately reneged on his promises regarding Eastern Europe, and turned those countries into communist satellite states under the control of the USSR. By 1948, it was clear that this was starting to happen in Korea. The Soviets set up a communist regime in their occupation zone, which later became North Korea. And who did the Soviets install as the communist dictator of North Korea? Kim Il-sung. If that name sounds familiar, it's because he was the grandfather of the current ruthless tyrant of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. The dictatorship went from Kim Il-sung to his son, Kim Jong-il, and then to the grandson, Kim Jong-un. One last thing to cover before we get to the actual Korean War, and that's what happened to China after World War II. As I explained earlier, the nationalists and the communists had set aside their differences during World War II so they could both fight against their common enemy, the Japanese. Once Japan surrendered, the Chinese Civil War was back on. After years of brutal fighting and millions of deaths, both military and civilian, the communist forces under Chairman Mao prevailed in 1949. The People's Republic of China, a communist regime, led by Mao Zedong, was proclaimed on October 1, 1949. The nationalist forces under Chiang Kai-shek fled to the island of Taiwan. For years, the U.S. and its western allies refused to recognize the communist government as the legitimate government of China. The U.S. kept up this fiction that the government on Taiwan was the genuine government representing all of China. This was finally resolved When Richard Nixon went to China in 1972 to open relations with the communist regime. Although the US government did not formally recognize the communist government in Beijing until 1979, to this day, there is still major tension between mainland China with its communist government in Beijing and what is now simply referred to as Taiwan. I know that was a lot of background. But it's necessary to understand what happened and why. Ever since Sigmund Rhee was established as the leader of South Korea, Kim Il-sung wanted to conquer the South and reunite Korea under his communist regime. With the end of the Chinese Civil War, Kim thought it was now his time. Kim asked Stalin for permission to invade the South. Stalin gave his permission and said that he would provide military material, such as tanks, jets, and weapons. But Stalin made it clear that he would not provide any Soviet troops. Stalin was worried that the U.S. might send troops on behalf of South Korea, and Stalin did not want an actual shooting war between Americans and Soviet soldiers. Stalin did provide military advisors to organize the North Korean army. He also provided some pilots. This resulted in some aerial dogfights later on, wherein American pilots were flying American jets and were fighting against Soviet-built jets flown by Soviet pilots, but the jets had North Korean insignias. By the way, the Korean War was the first time that jets fought against other jets. In World War II, the Nazis had developed the first jet fighters, the Messerschmitt Me-262, but the Allies did not have jets to oppose the Me-262. But fortunately for all of civilization, the Nazis had very few of those Me-262s, and they were overrun by the overwhelming numbers of the Western Allies propeller-driven fighters like the P-51 Mustang. In addition to asking Stalin for permission and help, Kim also asked for help from the Chinese. You have to remember, China was in terrible condition at this time. The Civil War had just ended in September 1949, but Chairman Mao agreed to help. Part of the reason he agreed was because so many Korean communists had fought on behalf of the Chinese communists in the Chinese Civil War. The actual war begins on June 25, 1950, when North Korean troops pour over the 38th parallel into South Korea. South Korea was not prepared at all. The South Korean army was not well trained and did not have up-to-date equipment. And the South Korean army was on its own. The U.S. had pulled out its soldiers in 1949. American troops would have to be sent back into Korea from their bases in Japan. So why wasn't the US better prepared for this? Throughout its history, America has followed George Washington's admonition in his farewell address about not getting entangled in foreign affairs. After World War I, the US went back to total isolationism. In fact, America did not join the League of Nations, essentially the precursor of the United Nations, even though it was the brainchild of President Woodrow Wilson. After World War II, large segments of the American population wanted to go back to the isolationist model. But Joseph Stalin's aggressions in Eastern Europe made this impossible. As I mentioned earlier, the Soviets turned Eastern Europe into communist satellite states. And the Soviets backed communist insurgencies in European countries that had not been occupied by the Red Army, including Greece and Turkey. This resulted in the U.S. remaining involved in Europe after World War II. But what about the rest of the world? The U.S. had a long history of putting Europe first when it came to foreign relations. Would the U.S. assist countries in Asia fighting against communist takeovers? Since their surrender, the U.S. had occupied Japan and was completely transforming that society from a military dictatorship to a modern, functioning democracy where, Even women got civil rights. Imagine that. When it came to Asia, the U.S. was completely focused on Japan and was essentially ignoring South Korea. Now that the communists invaded the South, what would America do? Harry Truman was president in June 1950. He wanted the opposition to the communist aggression to be a coalition under the legitimacy of the United Nations and not just an American operation. Growing up as a history geek, I wondered how the UN was able to sanction a war against the communist North Koreans. Permanent members on the UN Security Council could veto any motion. The five permanent members on the UN Security Council in 1950 were the US, Britain, France, USSR, and China. Of course, this raises the question, which Chinese government? When I studied this issue at Notre Dame, I finally found out the answers. In 1950, the UN recognized Chiang Kai-shek and his nationalist regime as the legitimate representatives of China. So, it was Chiang Kai-shek's government which had the veto power, not Chairman Mao and his communist government in Beijing. In protest of the situation, the Soviets were boycotting the UN in June of 1950. Since the Soviets were not present, they could not veto the motion, and the proposal to defend South Korea was passed by the United Nations. This is why it was technically the United Nations forces who were opposing the North Koreans, not American forces. This was the only time until the end of the Cold War that the UN worked like it was supposed to in opposing an aggressor nation. Alright, let's get back to the military situation. Seoul is only about 30 miles south of the 38th parallel. The North Korean army captured Seoul on June 28, only three days after the war started. U.S. troops started moving into South Korea from Japan. But the North Korean army seemed unstoppable. One reason is that so many of the North Korean soldiers had fought in the Chinese Civil War, so they were experienced and battle-hardened. Douglas MacArthur was named as the Supreme Commander of the United Nations Forces in Korea. The UN forces would eventually include soldiers from 15 other nations, but at the beginning, it was essentially South Korean and American troops. And the South Koreans and U.S. soldiers were not ready the North Korean army pushed down the peninsula. South Korea is only about 200 miles from the 38th parallel down to the southern shore of the peninsula. The North Koreans almost pushed the UN forces completely off of the peninsula. The North Korean army overran most of South Korea by the beginning of August... The only portion of South Korea still held by the UN forces was the extreme southeast corner of the peninsula around the city of Busan. By the way, back then, Westerners called Busan, which in English is spelled with a B as in Bravo, as Pusan with a P as in Papa. Anyway... That area held by the U.N. was called the Pusan Perimeter, a roughly 140-mile defensive line, making kind of a square with troops dug in on the west and north and open water on the south and east. Pusan was a major port and vital to the U.N. war effort. If the U.N. was pushed completely off the peninsula, the war was probably over. This situation required a bold move. I am definitely not a fan of Douglas MacArthur. In fact, I think he's the most overrated military person in United States history. However, I have to give him credit for this one. He did pull off a brilliant move when needed. MacArthur sized up the situation. With United Nations forces barely hanging on on the extreme southeast corner of the peninsula, the Pusan perimeter, MacArthur proposed a bold tactic. An amphibious invasion well behind the North Korean army at a place on the west side of the Korean peninsula named Incheon. On September 15, 1950, MacArthur landed around 75,000 troops at Incheon. It was a major success. So much so that two weeks later, MacArthur's forces recaptured the South Korean capital of Seoul. As a result of the Incheon invasion, the UN forces in Pusan pushed back against the North Korean army and the entire North Korean army was almost captured between the UN forces at Pusan and the troops who had invaded at Incheon. Soon, the UN forces had fought their way to the 38th parallel. In short, the UN had control of all of South Korea. The question was, what to do now? The resolutions passed by the United Nations authorized a war to push the aggressors, the North Koreans, back across the 38th parallel. There was no mandate from the UN to conquer North Korea and unite the country, but MacArthur really wanted to invade North Korea. You have to remember, MacArthur had an ego the size of Wyoming, and his recent victory at Incheon didn't hurt his tremendous self-confidence. It was no surprise that MacArthur would want to conquer North Korea and unite the entire peninsula under the South Korean government. But why would Truman agree to this? And although these are officially United Nations forces, most of the military was being supplied by the U.S. MacArthur was the supreme commander, and Truman was the person ultimately calling the shots. Truman gives MacArthur the green light to invade North Korea and try to reunite the entire peninsula for several reasons. The first reason is that MacArthur convinced Truman that he could defeat the North Korean army and conquer all of North Korea, and have American troops home by Thanksgiving of that year. A second reason why Truman authorized MacArthur to invade the North was for political reasons. Truman and his administration were receiving a lot of abuse for losing China. A lot of people blamed Truman and his advisors for the communists winning the Chinese Civil War. Of course, this was a ridiculous accusation. The only way that the United States could have possibly changed the result of the Chinese Civil War would have been with a massive military commitment. This would have involved America committing the kind of troop numbers like America did in World War II. There is no way the American people would have supported such a war, especially when this was only about three years after the end of World War II. But that did not stop the political beating that the Truman administration received because of the loss of China. The third reason Truman approved MacArthur's proposal to conquer communist North Korea was also political. In February 1950, Wisconsin Senator Joe McCarthy became a national sensation when he claimed in a speech that he had a list of Members of the Communist Party and Members of a Spy Ring who were employed in the U.S. State Department. This led to the infamous McCarthy hearings, which were essentially a witch hunt of communists infiltrating the Truman administration. Even though McCarthy was making it all up, his red-baiting put enormous political pressure on Truman to avoid being seen as soft on communism. So Truman wanted to be seen as a leader who stood up to the communists, And for the first time, the free world would roll back communism and retake a communist country. Fourth reason Truman gave in to MacArthur was the political calculation that if Truman said no, MacArthur would be screaming to the press that he could win the war outright, unify Korea, and defeat the communists, but Truman would not allow him to do so. MacArthur was probably the most political general in the history of America. And he had a lot of friends in the press and on Capitol Hill. That brings me to the fifth and possibly most important reason why Truman authorized MacArthur to invade North Korea. This was because the general had assured the president that China would not enter the war on behalf of North Korea. MacArthur claimed that his intelligence said that China was not going to enter the war. MacArthur also told Truman that If, in the unlikely chance, China did enter the war, he would annihilate the Chinese army easily. More on this in a moment. At the beginning of October, MacArthur advanced north of the 38th parallel. To be fair, the Joint Chiefs of Staff had given MacArthur permission to do so. Now, to make sure that they were on the same page regarding military strategy, Truman met MacArthur at Wake Island in the Pacific on October 15, 1950. So Truman gave in, and MacArthur took the UN forces towards the Yalu River. This was a terrible mistake by both MacArthur and Truman. North Korea borders two countries. As I informed you earlier, there's a small border with Russia. But most of the North Korean border is with China, and most of that border is defined by the Yalu River. In the fall of 1950, the Chinese had been sending signals that they would enter the war... If UN forces invaded North Korea, Chinese Prime Minister Zhou Enlai, who was the number two person in China after Chairman Mao, advised the representatives from India that if American troops crossed the 38th parallel, China would intervene. This warning was passed along by the Indian government to the U.S. government. Now, As I stated at the beginning of this episode, I'm mainly focusing on political matters and not military details. But I'll give you a quick military summary. The UN troops captured the North Korean capital of Pyongyang. Then the UN forces continued north. and When they got near the Yalu River, they were attacked by the Chinese army. Much to the surprise of MacArthur and the UN military, there were overwhelming numbers of Chinese already south of the Yalu River, in other words, in North Korea, and ready to counterattack. The U.N. Army was supplied with first-rate American military equipment. The Chinese were poorly equipped and could not contend with American air superiority, but they had tremendous numbers on their side. The fighting that winter was horrendous. This is a mountainous region near the Manchurian section of China with brutal winters. Soldiers had to endure temperatures of 20 below zero Fahrenheit. Eventually, the Chinese pushed the UN forces out of North Korea and south of the 38th parallel. The Chinese captured Seoul by early January 1951. The last seesaw battle for the South Korean capital occurred a couple months later when the UN forces retook Seoul in March of 1951. The opposing sides dug in around the 38th parallel in the spring of 1951. The war turned into a stalemate pretty much like the Western Front of World War I, with the Communist forces and the UN forces trading some small amount of territory here or there, but no great gains by either side. On April 11, 1951, President Truman relieved General Douglas MacArthur as Supreme Commander in Korea. Why did MacArthur get fired? The short answer is that MacArthur wanted to greatly expand the war into World War III with the United States versus China. In the retreat from the areas near the Chinese border, MacArthur ordered American forces to bomb the bridges crossing the Yalu River. This resulted in some violations of Chinese airspace, but a much more serious expansion of the war was proposed by MacArthur. In December 1950, MacArthur requested discretion to use nuclear bombs. He submitted a list of targets in North Korea and China and requested 34, that's right, you heard me, 34 atomic bombs. Truman had hinted in the press that all weapons were being considered, which included atom bombs, but it appears that that was just nuclear saber-rattling to scare the North Koreans and the Chinese. However, MacArthur was serious about using atomic weapons, specifying particular targets and the fact that he would need 34 nuclear bombs. His application for nukes was rejected. Then, in March 1951, MacArthur again asked for permission to use atom bombs, but again his request was denied. MacArthur then spoke to the press and sent communications to his friends in Congress that he could win the war in Korea outright, but Truman was not letting him do so. This was the final straw and Truman fired him. Here is part of Truman's announcement to the press. I believe that we must try to limit the war to Korea for these vital reasons, to make sure that the precious lives of our fighting men are not wasted, to see that the security of our country and the free world is not needlessly jeopardized and to prevent a third world war. A number of events have made it evident that General MacArthur did not agree with that policy. I have therefore considered it essential to relieve General MacArthur so that there would be no doubt or confusion as to the real purpose and aim of our policy. The war dragged on for another two years, but it was essentially a stalemate with periodic armistice negotiations. There were two main reasons why a settlement was not reached for so long. The first dealt with prisoners of war. Both sides demanded that their soldiers, who were being held as prisoners of war, be returned. The problem was, a lot of the North Koreans who were held as prisoners in the South did not want to go back to North Korea. The North Korean government refused to accept that fact. The more important reason why it took so long to settle this conflict was Joseph Stalin. Stalin was very happy that the U.S. was bogged down in a seemingly endless war in Korea. From Stalin's point of view, this was the best of all worlds because Soviet forces were not directly fighting the Americans, but the U.S. military was tied up in Korea and unavailable should the military be needed in other parts of the world. So Stalin was instructing the North Koreans and Chinese to continue the war. Fortunately for all of humanity, Joseph Stalin died on March 5th, 1953. This resulted in a power struggle among the top men in the Kremlin. These new Soviet leaders did not see any point in continuing to support China's fight in Korea. So the new Soviet leaders issued a statement calling for an armistice. This opened the door for the new American president, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who had just come into office in January 1953 to try to settle the conflict. The Korean the Armistice Agreement was signed on July 27, 1953, on behalf of the militaries of the United Nations, China, and North Korea. However, no representatives from South Korea ever signed the Armistice Agreement. The Korean Armistice Agreement is purely a military document. An armistice is merely an agreement for the cessation of hostilities, meaning the two sides agreed to stop fighting but it's not a formal treaty to tie up all of the loose ends. And to this day, there is no formal treaty ending the war. That's why technically the Korean War has never ended and there's still a demilitarized zone between North Korea and South Korea. So what was the legacy of the Korean War for the United States? Before 1950, Americans viewed war as a defensive measure. The U.S. was attacked and Americans went to war with the idea of fighting until... They achieved outright victory. Korea was the first taste of actual war in the framework of the Cold War. It had to be limited. Truman and most Americans were right that nobody wanted to have a Third World War against the Chinese and possibly the Soviet Union as well. By the time of the Korean War, America had lost its nuclear monopoly. The Soviet Union had developed atomic weapons in 1949. So, if there was a World War III, it would be with atomic weapons. There was a term that developed during the Cold War called MAD, which stood for Mutually Assured Destruction. This meant that in a nuclear war, there would be no winners, only losers. So, the Korean War ended in a stalemate. That was probably the best that the Western world could have hoped for under the circumstances. That stalemate has remained in effect, and America continues to garrison troops in South Korea. But in the 1950s, Americans felt that a three-year war costing thousands of American lives seemed pointless. Attitudes changed after the Vietnam War, which did not result in a stalemate, but in an outright victory by the communist forces. Well, that's it for today. Please subscribe to this podcast and please like this and my other episodes. Ratings and likes greatly helped with the algorithms that determine the placement of podcasts on particular apps. So if you're listening on a podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, which allow for ratings, please consider giving a five-star rating. Please tell your friends, relatives, coworkers Word of mouth is the best way to increase audience for this podcast. Don't forget to check out my website, historyanalyze.com, where you will find links to my podcast episodes as well as fun items for all history geeks like This Day in History, book recommendations, historical sound bites, photos of some of the subjects of certain episodes, and links to supporting historical evidence. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.